0: In early 1885, Selim Franklin stood up in front of his colleagues in the Arizona Territorial Legislature. It had been a tumultuous session so far, and not always in good ways. Now before the body's deliberation was a bill that was on the verge of being defeated. Franklin, a resident of Tucson who was serving as a member of the House of Representatives from Pima County, took the opportunity to blast both his colleagues and the whole session in general. After repeating some rather unflattering nicknames that they had garnered so far, he went on to say, quote, We have deserved these names, and we know it. End quote. But, he went on to say, quote, Here is an opportunity to wash away our sins. Let us establish an institution of learning, where for all time to come the youth of the land may learn to become better citizens than we are, and all our shortcomings will be forgotten in a misty past and we will be remembered for this one great achievement." This speech was met by applause by those in the gallery, which may have been stacked specifically for this occasion, and surprisingly by the measure in question being passed by the House without a single dissenting vote. I'd like to think that the House members, who just voted to form what we know today as the University of Arizona, were stung a little bit in their collective consciences. Because Franklin was right, they did have a fair number of sins that called for a good washing. This session, marked with strife, discord, and more than its fair share of graft, was about to go down in history as one of the most notorious the territory ever saw. And that is today's story. I'm your host, David Ruckhausen, and you are listening to A.Z., THE HISTORY OF ARIZONA Episode 91, The Thieving Thirteenth Welcome back, everyone. This is the first time in a while that I don't have a large narrative to continue, which, I have to say, actually feels a little weird. But to fill that void... I do need to start today with a small correction. Last episode, while wrapping up the fate of those involved in the drama surrounding the gunfight at the O.K. Corral, I mentioned that cowboy leader Johnny Ringo was found dead under mysterious circumstances in July 1882. Alert listener Bob M. reached out to me to say that while I said Ringo was found on the east side of the Chiricahua Mountains, he, in fact, was found on the west side of that range. I went back and double-checked, and yeah, yep, he's right. Chalked that one up to simple user error on my part, which resulted in confusing directions. But thanks for keeping me honest, Bob, and thanks for listening. With the gunfight at the OK Corral now slowly disappearing in the rearview mirror, I want to turn our attention to something of a palate cleanser before we begin our next main course. And that necessitates talking about a bit player in the ERP story who I sort of snuck in at the end there. Because, as I said last episode, White's Vendetta Ride wasn't causing headaches for John C. Fremont. It was causing headaches for Frederick A. Triddle. But before we can get to Triddle, we need to talk a bit more about the last days of Fremont's administration and the horse race to replace him because, of course, Fremont's not there for the last days of his own administration. For this, you'll need to think back a good 15 episodes to episode 76— which is when we discuss the fact that Fremont just was never around. When it became apparent that he wouldn't be in office too much longer, the territorial secretary, John J. Gosper, started to subtly maneuver himself into position to take the top seat. After all, he was basically acting as governor whenever Fremont was on his frequent trips back east, so why shouldn't he get the gig? As part of his push, he leaked a few letters to the press showing that no one from outside the state could get a hold of the governor. And I mentioned this during the run-up to the gunfight at the O.K. Corral, but he would also play up the animosity between Virgil Earp and Johnny Behan as proof that the territory needed a stronger hand on the tiller to keep the peace in Cochise County. That stronger hand being, of course, his own. But then he just said to heck with subtlety and wrote to both President Garfield and later President Chester A. Arthur asking for the job directly, touting his service in the Civil War, which left him with a wooden leg, and the fact that, by his calculation, he'd been acting as governor three-fourths of the time anyway. Gosper claimed to have the support of most of the major newspapers in the territory, which was something of a white lie, and that the only one really opposing him was the Arizona Minor, which was certainly true. Now, the editor of the Miner had a bitter feud with Gosper, who owned the Phoenix Herald, and had awarded that paper with lucrative government printing contracts. The editor of the Miner, one Charles W. Beach, viciously took up his pen against Gosper's maneuvering, calling out these contracts as straight-up bribery, then going on to say, quote, Mr. Gosper has not the least qualifications for the place he is unlettered and can't write ten words grammatically. Worse, he cannot spell, punctuate, or present a document of a public nature in an enlightened or correct manner. However, it is useless to discuss this matter so far as Gosper is concerned, for he will never see the parchment making him governor of this territory. End quote. Now, my source for that quote, historian Jay Wagoner, then goes on to a long tangent about beach, which is a rabbit hole that is much too fun not to fall down myself. Because Beach, who had been living in Arizona since 1864, might be part of the single most memorable courtroom drama during the whole territorial period. So the story goes that on December 3rd, 1883, Beach was in court because his mother-in-law was involved in a civil suit with a hot-tempered man named Patrick McAteer, involving the water rights to a creek that was adjacent to both their properties. At one point... His mother-in-law's attorney called McIntyre's attorney a liar, to which the offended lawyer hurled an inkwell back before attacking his courtroom rival. Then his client, McIntyre, who was not the most stable individual, drew a large buck knife and started swinging it around willy-nilly. He badly sliced the arm of a 70-year-old man and then stabbed Beach in the neck, barely missing the jugular. McAteer also cornered a man known as Bucky O'Neill, who I really need to cover at some point, and probably would have killed him if Beach hadn't drawn his gun and shot McAteer in the back. So yeah, this is not exactly something you would see on an episode of Law & Order. McAteer would die roughly a month later from this gunshot, while the 70-year-old man he sliced with his knife had to have his arm amputated. As for Beach, he actually wouldn't live that much longer himself. He was killed in 1889 by a man who thought he had stolen his wife. Like I said, it was such an entertaining story, I couldn't pass it up. Now, Beach would lob accusations at Gosper of sloppy bookkeeping while being the territorial secretary, and that he had overcharged the federal government for what few supplies he had bought. Gosper defended his conduct, of course, though by 1885, three years after not getting the governor's office, he still had some $7,600 unaccounted for. Ultimately, and much to Gosper's chagrin, President Arthur decided not to go with the current territorial secretary. This was the era of patronage, after all, and though Arthur would go on to champion civil service reform it would take some time before the spoil system would be ratcheted down. So, at the insistence of a senator by the name of John P. Jones from Nevada, the president appointed Frederick A. Triddle to the post. Triddle had been born in Pennsylvania in 1833, but as a young man had passed the bar and moved out to Iowa to practice law. His next stop was California in 1859, followed by Nevada in 1860. Here, he would eventually settle in the silver boomtown of Virginia City, and would be well known for his various business and mining interests. Like all businessmen of the era, Triddle decided to give politics a try, and would serve in Nevada State Senate before an unsuccessful run for governor in 1870. He also had business interests in Arizona by 1880, and in the words of historian Wagoner, was a booster for the territory by that point. I don't have a firm rationale for why Arthur chose Triddle for the governorship, aside from Jones whispering in the president's ear, but hey, maybe that was enough? So on March 8, 1882, Triddle was sworn in as Arizona's sixth territorial governor. Like I said, he was known for his zeal for the territory and what it could accomplish, as seen in an anecdote passed along in at least two of my sources. During a trip back east, which I can't seem to find a year for, he was apparently at a banquet in Boston, and at this dinner a toast was made from the governor of the oldest commonwealth to the youngest. Basically, the governor of Massachusetts was supposed to respond and say a few words to welcome this little ragamuffin that was the Arizona Territory, but surprising everyone, Triddle stood up first and thanked the confused crowd for giving him the honor as the oldest commonwealth to welcome the whippersnapper that was Massachusetts. He then went on to give a little history lesson of Arizona's Amerindian, Spanish, and Mexican pass, saying, in Wagner's words, quote, Arizona had a civilization and a degree of government long before the first Indians roamed through the forests of New England, end quote. Okay, so that's not exactly true, but still, Triddle did have something of a point. At the moment, however, Arizona seemed to be lacking any degree of government. Triddle became governor in March 1882, and for everyone who stayed awake and paid attention, what was happening? Yep, that's right. Wyatt Earp was riding through southern Arizona, chasing after anyone who he thought had had a hand in the death and maiming of his brothers. Chaos seemed to be everywhere, and President Arthur would even threaten to impose martial law on the territory. For Triddle, the answer was simple. If the Texas Rangers had kicked those darn cowboys out of their state, then Arizona should raise a company and do the same. The territory didn't have enough money to fund a full militia, and even if the military could be used, it moved entirely too slow. So the governor would ask the federal government for $150,000 to arm a company of these rangers. Now, this is an idea we've discussed before, but it never really seems to get off the ground. Though a posse of Tucson volunteers would be formed in May 1882 to track down some renegade Apache. However, this group decided to follow the Apache into Mexico toward the state of Chihuahua, and wound up being captured by General Bernardo Reyes in Sonora. For the record, I don't know if this is the same General Bernardo Reyes who would play so prominent a role in the Mexican Revolution, but it would be fascinating if it was. Anyway, Reyes would disarm these volunteers and send them packing back to Arizona, which became a source of embarrassment for Triddle. And while we're talking about Apache policy, I should mention here that triddle was not a fan of the reservation system as it currently existed. In his mind, the reservation was nothing more than a type of west point where Apaches were learning how to fight and then would leave it to maraud around the territory. His solution was typical for the period, disarm them and have a strong military presence all around, or remove them from the territory entirely. Not the most enlightened policy, but he's not going to stick around long enough to see how it turns out anyway. As I said a couple times now, Triddle was a booster for Arizona. In a message to the 12th legislature, he actively encouraged the development of the territory's resources, especially mining, but also timber as well as artisan whales. He encouraged more settlements in Arizona, which naturally included a call for more railroad connections to bring all these people in. And in an idea that is fully embraced today, he recommended stocking lakes, ponds, and rivers with fish. Because, you know, why not? Triddle would travel east to New Orleans for the World's Industrial and Cotton Centennial Expo in 1884, where he took advantage of the opportunity to show off everything the territory had to offer. And he brought with him some 50,000 mineral samples, including a piece of ore from the Bisbee area that was roughly 7,300 pounds and contained 33% pure copper. Also, just as an aside, the active persecution of polygamous Mormons in Arizona that we discussed back in episode 82 occurred under Triddle's administration. But when Triddle was in the territory, he was paying attention to the state legislature. The second session to convene while he was in office certainly was a doozy. Early state historian James H. McClintock describes the first legislature that Triddle presided over, the 12th, as, if you'll pardon the modern term, a snooze fest, with only the repeal of a bullion tax rousing it out of dullness. The 13th, however, would soon go down in notoriety. It was supposed to get going on January 12, 1885, but the House wouldn't meet until January 19th, and the council until January 21st. Most of that delay was due to the difficulty of getting to Prescott for some of the delegates, with both the Salt and Gila Rivers being flooded. And that soon produced a huge problem due to the fact that legislators from places like Pima County were soon requesting mileage reimbursement to the tune of $330 because they had to go into California via train to avoid Mother Nature's wrath. At least one representative had gone all the way to Los Angeles before turning around and heading back toward Prescott. And then, just to be irksome I guess, a floating representative for the territory's five northern counties, who McClintock says lived just across the street from the legislature in Prescott, decided that he could submit a bill for mileage from any county that he represented. So, he asked for a reimbursement of $255 for the theoretical journey he might have taken. All in all, these claims amounted for more than $4,000 above what the poor territorial secretary had accounted for, which was particularly bad because he had a budget from Congress for all territorial expenses of only $25,000. The secretary also made another controversial choice in only paying out the legislature's $4 per diem for the days they were actually in session, meaning that they were all out a week's worth of money. They seem to have struck back savagely, however, because at the end of the session, the secretary confessed that these men somehow used a lot more stationery and other items for their business than he had ever counted on. McClintock writes that no other legislative session was so good to Prescott as they gave upwards $80,000 in printing contracts to the town. And for all this and much, much more, the lavishly spending legislature soon acquired the nickname the Thieving Thirteenth. But they did do some solids for Arizona, along with more political shenanigans, of course. For context... From the get-go, Arizona's economy was mainly reliant on the army and its contracts. But by 1885, the Apache Wars were wrapping up, which meant that new economic pillars had to be established. So some horse trading was started over the prestigious institutions of the day, an insane asylum, a normal school or teacher's college, and a state university. In Wagoner’s colorful language, When the shouting was over and the smoke-filled rooms were aired out, the institutions listed above had been distributed as follows. Yuma kept the territorial prison. Phoenix got the insane asylum. Tempe the normal school. And Tucson was given the state university. Now, I will add that the insane asylum was a questionable choice, as the argument was made that the money being spent on the institution was more than the previous solution shipping the mentally ill individuals to the asylum in Stockton, California. And though the appropriation for the normal school was a mere fraction of what Phoenix got for the insane asylum, the town, and its founder, Charles Hayden, were actually quite pleased with the choice. Hayden would remark to his representative in the legislature that, quote, Stockton, California was known to most people only as a place where insane people were confined. End quote. Unsaid in that was the portion that Phoenix could run the risk of that reputation if it wanted, but Tempe had some higher things in mind. Now, the land for the normal school was donated by George and Martha Wilson, which is why today there is a George W. Wilson Hall on the grounds of Arizona State University. So, shout out to Hayden, the Wilsons, and the school that would eventually go on to become my alma mater, ASU. Now, because we don't have enough hot potatoes already, the subject of the location of the territorial capital came up yet again. Before the session even started, Tucson knew that there was a chance that the right persuasion, known to you and I as cash bribes, could nab them the capital once again. Unfortunately, this is where the flooding along the Gila and Salt really threw a wrench in things. By the time the delegates from Pima County got to the legislature, Prescott boosters had been hard at work with their own inducements, and so the capital stayed put. Tucson would only have the runner-up prize of the university. It may be funny now, but citizens of the old Pueblo were furious that they had lost the capital again, only for their representative to come home with a lowly old university instead. In a statement that is today incredibly ironic, one leading Tucson citizen who consequently owned a saloon, spat, quote, Why do we need a university? Those students won't drink. End quote. At least that state historian Marshall Trimble's version. Another comes from Wagoner, who says a favorite quip of the time was, quote, Who ever heard of a professor buying a drink? End quote. Wagoner also passes along that after news of this had reached Tucson, they actually sent a messenger up to Prescott with a slush fund of some $4,000 to try and buy back the capital. An effort that went nowhere, but it's funny to read about. For the Pima County representative who had secured the university for Tucson, he was greeted at home by an angry mob who pelted him with eggs, overly ripe vegetables, and again, according to Wagoner, a dead cat. When it came time to select a location, it was impossible to find someone in town willing to donate land for the project. Eventually, a 40-acre site on a low mesa east of Tucson proper was selected, and its owners, two gamblers and a saloon owner, were persuaded to donate the mesquite-covered land. And that is where the University of Arizona now stands. I would like to think that Tucson is a little more welcoming of the university these days. And though I'm a sun devil at heart... Bear down, all you wildcats. There were some other notable bills that came through this hectic legislature, including to divide Cochise County and create Sierra Bonita County, which would have had Wilcox as its county seat. And this came close to happening with the measure only being defeated by one vote. And because this session loved spending money A subsidy of $292,000 was given to connect Prescott with the Atlantic and Pacific, later Santa Fe Railroad, and $200,000 was given to finally connect Phoenix with the Southern Pacific Railroad in Maricopa. This was all a matter of great debate as individuals, all with certain business holdings, were battling about whether to connect Phoenix with the Atlantic and Pacific Railroad to the north or the Southern Pacific Railroad to the south. The southern route eventually won out, and a tricky maneuver ensured that a railroad between Prescott and Phoenix would never come to pass. During the debate about subsidizing such a connection, Representative DeForest Porter, who had championed connecting Phoenix to the southern Pacific, actually pocketed the physical bill and walked out with it while everyone was debating. He even claimed to be sick on the last day of the session so he wouldn't have to come back with the bill in hand. I really do love 19th century American politics. In his opening address to the legislature, Governor Triddle also repeated an oft-wished-for desire, petitioning Congress to buy a strip of Mexico so that Arizona could please, please, please have a port on the Sea of Cortez. McClintock says that this petition was often repeated in the territorial legislature, but it was never destined to come true. Part of the reason for that was, he says, and I have not verified this personally, so take it with a grain of salt, that the Mexican Constitution specifically makes death the punishment for any attempts to shrink the territory controlled by Mexico. And just because this session really is the gift that keeps on giving, there is yet another nickname it goes by. In addition to being the Thieving 13th, it was also known as the Bloody 13th and that's because its members had a bad habit of getting into fights, both in the neighboring saloons and in the halls of power itself. One notable instance occurred when a man named Welford Chapman Bridwell, a council member from Graham County, was at a local watering hole between meetings. Bridwell, who had the 10th state legislature change his name from Clay Buford, was known not to carry grudges, but was always up to defend his honor. It so happened that on this particular day, a Frenchman who was a lobbyist for the Arizona Copper Company in Clifton made some flippant remarks about Bridwell's name change. In a flash, Bridwell got up, and the lobbyist found himself on the ground with broken glasses and a broken nose. So, the only natural response was for the Frenchman to challenge him to a duel, right? Then came the arguing about using pistols or swords— Eventually, friends intervened and some full glasses of alcohol managed to calm everyone down before an actual duel took place. In another instance that I wish, I wish I had details for, Marshall Trimble remarks that a duel during this session was resolved using a monkey wrench and a bullwhip. But while the bloody 13th has a certain macabre ring to it, it's more common to see this session of the state legislature described as the thieving 13th. And it's not a reputation that would die when the session ended either. In fact, after the session had done its business, a grand jury in Tucson would be organized to look into the matter. They would tell the judge of the 1st Judicial District of Arizona that the thieving 13th had exceeded the legal limit for the operating expense of one legislative session, which was $4,000, by somewhere in the neighborhood of $46,700. A lot of talk of conspiracy, personal enrichment, and graft were tossed around, including that one person had been paid $500 for three days' worth of reporting work. In December 1885, another grand jury would convene in Prescott where they had similar findings after interviewing 21 witnesses, and it was determined that waste was everywhere. The Thieving 13th had paid $19,967 for printing services, which was well above what a private business would shell out for the same work. The legislature also spent some $3,076 on mailing newspapers, which was also deemed just a straight-up waste. And that doesn't get into the sheer number of clerks, pages, and janitors employed by the legislature, which was well above what it actually needed. This was combined with the fact that many of these so-called clerks reported that they had done little to no work, and some hadn't even bothered to show up at all except to collect the paycheck. McClintock said nothing really came from these grand jury investigations, mainly because Prescott was afraid that too much fuss would cost it the territorial capital. And while Triddle was never accused himself of any impropriety, his reputation was damaged immensely from his association with the Thieving 13th. In August 1885, a district attorney in Prescott reported that Triddle, in the space of only a year and after only three years in office, had become one of the most unpopular governors ever. Just for flavor, he added that the governor constantly was under the influence of whiskey to boot. A petition was actually taken up by Arizona citizens accusing the governor of all sorts of improprieties having to do with abuse of his office. And though he was gone from office quickly enough, it actually had nothing to do with all these shenanigans at all. Instead, Triddle resigned his office on October 7th, 1885, for a matter of pure politics. Because President Grover Cleveland, a Democrat, had just been elected so Triddle, a Republican, stepped aside to allow him to appoint someone from his own party without having to go through the embarrassment of being replaced. We'll get into his replacement in a future episode but I want to mention some of the other people who vied for the job. There was a serious contender in the form of John G. Campbell, who owned a lot of property in northern Arizona and had been in the territory for 22 years. Among his credentials were that he was a staunch Democrat, a former member of the Yavapai Board of Supervisors and the Territorial House of Representatives, along with being a former Territorial Secretary and Delegate to Congress. And there were other notable Democratic candidates as well, Charles Hayden and Granville Houry, a name that I haven't been able to throw out in a few episodes. But history is a lot more fun when we dive into these strange and bizarre candidates, so allow me to snicker a bit over the following examples. One petition came from 39 citizens of Vandalia, Illinois, who suggested a man named R.G. Moss. However, attached to this petition was a note reading, quote, Mr. Moss is an old gentleman who has conceived an insane desire to be appointed governor of Arizona. We are afraid that his mind is seriously affected. Please acknowledge receipt of this petition and say to him that there are so many applications ahead of his that he should not be disappointed if he is not appointed. He could not fill the office. End quote. Another came in the form of an application from a New York man named E. H. Coleman, which started this way. Quote, You may recall the writer as the first man who had the honor of shaking your hand at your reception at 2 p.m. today, and who mentioned briefly that he was a manufacturer of goods that come in direct competition with European goods, but that his faith in the administration and the Democratic Party was sound and had given him no uneasiness. You replied, we will take care of you, sir. End quote. Apparently, those are the only qualifications you need back then to run a U.S. territory. As for Triddle, he has a distinct honor. Though he was the sixth governor of the territory, he was actually the first to actually stay in Arizona following his stint in office. Like many before and after him, he'd become deeply involved in railroads and mining, especially the United Verde mine in Jerome, which is something he had become involved with while governor. Unfortunately, the mine never really paid that well for him, and by the mid-1890s, he returned to politics, serving as the recorder for Yavapai County for three years, and then as a census supervisor in 1900. Triddle would die in Phoenix in 1906. And I'm going to leave things here for this week, as this politics-heavy episode was meant to be a palate cleanser between the saga of the OK Corral and for our next saga, which we will start next week. Because since we are now in the mid-1880s, we have to turn to the other major concern of the territory at the time. Namely, the wrapping up of the Apache Wars and the capture of one of the most infamous Amerindians in not only Arizona, but U.S. history. So join me next week as we catch up with none other than Geronimo and watch his on-and-off-again conflict with the White Eyes, which will eventually see him die famous, but in exile. I'm your host, David Ruckhausen, and you've been listening to AZ, the History of Arizona. Goodbye.